Today on the Deep End Podcast, we are going to talk about the joy of self-defeat. Yes, the joy of self-defeat. Because the world tells you to go out there and get the life you want, but Christ comes and tells us, give up the life you want so that you can get the life only he can give you. Plus, I answer viewer questions, one of my favorite parts of this show. Welcome to Tuesday Night, the Deep End Hello, Tuesday night people, and whenever you're watching or listening, people, we're so glad that you are here. My name is Tim, and this is The Deep End. It is a weekly show brought to you by Waters Church in North Attleboro, Massachusetts. I am your host, Tim Hatch, and it is a pleasure to welcome you in for yet another exciting episode where we answer your questions and we talk about Jesus and especially research the scriptures and learn about him. But today, I want to just open our episode by saying welcome to all the audiences out there, FM 99.3, Spotify, AM 590, WEZE in Boston, um, and then, of course, the YouTube.com slash The Deep End TV audience. Like and subscribe. Hit this thumbs up if you would. Be so kind. Click the notification bell. Subscribe to the YouTube channel, please. YouTube.com slash The Deep End TV. Okay, let's get into, right into content today. I'm excited. I love your questions. Always send them to 508-316-9333. We're going to get into the book of Acts and probably the most important moment in church history outside of the resurrection of Jesus, uh, the, the conversion of the Apostle Paul. We will get there in just a moment, so hang tight. But one of the best things about this podcast is the ability to have you ask me questions. Love your questions. No questions are stupid, in my opinion. I love to answer them. 508-316-9333 if you want to text them anonymously, or you can email them. You can make up a fake email and ask them at ask at deepend.tv, uh, or you can send them into the comment section below at youtube.com slash TV. Okay, so we've got Michael, Minnesota Michael over there in the studio. Let's take a look. See, put yourself up on screen, Michael. We Hello. Love and then behind him is Maddie. Wave, Maddie. Hi, Maddie. And Kelly to her left. Hello, Kelly. These are the valuable assets who help make the deep end what it is. Oh, uh, thanks. Yeah. Give them a shout out in the comments. Let them know how much you appreciate their hard work because they work very hard on this podcast, on this show. Okay, let's get to the questions. Michael, question number one. All right. Uh, question number one, when I look around our society, I see so many overweight people. I myself have struggled with uh, disordered eating. Why do we not hear the church speak much about gluttony? Is it possible to be overweight but not be gluttonous, or have we just accepted gluttony as a part of modern life? Well, it's a great question, and I think that sh uh, this questioner, I don't know who it is, uh, has actually nailed something that's very true. We have accepted gluttony as a part of modern life. We really have. And this person is right. We don't talk about it much, and maybe we should talk about it more, because gluttony is a sin. Um, it's not mentioned nearly as often as sexual immorality, uh, probably because, as Scripture call, tells us, and you can learn about this in the first season of The Deep End when we went through 1 Corinthians, when Paul talks about sexual morality is a sin against your own body. Gluttony uh, is a sin too. That also is a sin against your body, but it doesn't affect too many other people's bodies unless you turn into one of those people that show up on 600 Pound Life. Yeah. My wife's favorite television show, by the is way. It really? Yes. What is it with the women in that show? Do you, do you ladies over there, do you like that show? Neither of you. Oh, thank God. <laughs> My wife loves that show. Anyway, they turn into like, you know, 800 pound people. 
And then they have to be like crane lifted out of their bedrooms and then put on a, you know, semi truck and then <laughs> hauled over to the doctor's like that, office. It was like that Johnny Depp movie way back in the day. What's eating Gilbert Grape? <laughs> <laughs> That's way back. That's uh, way back machine right yeah, there. Yeah, yeah. So anyway, um, gluttony, again, back to, the, back to the question. Not nearly as often mentioned as other sins in the Bible. In fact, right before the podcast, I looked this up, and I think I can only find like three verses of Scripture that reference it, and one of those is when Jesus talks about his accusers saying that he was a drunkard and a glutton. So um, not mentioned very much. It is sinful, uh, and yet it is, like many sins in this culture, considered normative and part of the human experience, and also... Uh, cast off as a disease, uh, a malady, or um, the result of someone else's offenses against me. So the problem in American culture is, is not just that we do sin, it's how we view sin. And I think that gluttony falls right in line with the uh, I eat because, and whatever the because, whatever the, the the statement after that because is is the problem, not the overeating, <laughs> because we always blame. We blame. I, my father abused me, or I was molested as a child, or I'm trying to escape. And truth be told, many of those people on my my 600 pound life, because I've watched it on occasion with my wife, they do have that story. But it is a victimization mindset. There's a lot of skinny people who were molested as children. Uh, there's a lot of people who starved themselves who were molested as children, who were, who were victimized by other people's sins. So I would address this question by saying that the, the, the problem with sin is never really what we do, it's what is inside of us that causes us to do what we do. What's the first thing that Adam and Eve start doing when God confronts them about their sin? They're crossing the boundary. They point and blame. Adam blames the woman, woman blames the serpent. And by the way, she kind of, you know, subtly blames God, the, the, the serpent that you made, God. So this is really your fault. This is the heart of man. This is why when you preach the gospel, you're not really trying to say, don't do this. I think, I think the questioner here says, hey, I want to hear the preacher talk about this more often because it's so widespread. Well, all sin is widespread. And the pro what we often do as Christians is we, we like to address the fruit of the sin and not the root of the sin. And the root of the sin is disconnection with God. It is rebellion toward God. It is that, that carnal nature that we are all born with because we all descend from Adam and Eve, the, the, the first rebels who followed the ultimate rebel, Lucifer, into rebellion. And so our problem is not that we don't have enough people telling us what's bad and what to stop doing. The problem is that we don't have enough people introducing us to the liberator, the solution, the, the savior. See, Jesus is not lawgiver. He is savior. And uh, Romans talks about this. He is the end of the law because upon receipt of the Lord Jesus Christ, the Holy Spirit takes up residence in your body and starts to convict you from the inside out uh, about any number of things that are being made manifest on the outside of you. So sometimes you might go to church, especially to our church, and you will not hear me specifically naming that sin, that sin, that sin. I'll, I'll lump a bunch of things all together. Like, I can't imagine myself getting up on a Sunday and saying, you know what, today we're going to talk about gluttony. The whole message is going to be talking about gluttony or any particular sin, whether that be abortion uh, or homosexuality or adultery or lying or stealing. Look, 
those things on the outside are just uh, symptoms of the problem that's on the inside. And so what we do as a church is we try to introduce people to the Savior. We do not try to introduce people to the legislator. Okay, the legislator was Moses. Okay, Moses gave us the law. Jesus gives us the gospel. And the law, this is, this is good theology here. Just pay attention for a moment. The law is intended to crush us. Uh, de- destroy our self-righteousness, destroy the sense that we, are, we have it together and we are good. It crushes us so that Christ can come in and save us. And we're going to get to that with the Apostle Paul in just a moment. So that's why we don't hear about it so much. But you're absolutely right. As a culture, we have, with, along with a host of other fruits of the sinful tree inside of our human nature, we have accepted gluttony along with tons of other uh, sins as normative and natural. And many times... Not my fault, somebody else's fault. And we need to stop doing that. We need to talk about Jesus and we need to see people get delivered from their sin inside so that they can start living obediently on the outside. Amen. Thank you for that question. Great question. Keep them coming, people. Michael, next question. Okay. Oh, here's a good one. Who should Christians vote for when both choices <laughs> seem to be immoral? <laughs> Is it better to vote for a non-Christian who appears to have good values And what do we do with candidates like Mitt Romney, who seems to have strong values and strong business acumen, but is a member of a a cult like the Mormon church? I'm just looking for my Make America Great Again hat. Where did I put that? (laughs) I think think the cleaners took it. (laughs) No, who should we vote for? Okay, thank you. I have been waiting for this question on the deep end. I have been waiting for you to ask me who you should vote for because I know exactly who you should vote for. No, um, I do think I know who you should vote for. But here's the thing. The questioner, is, he, this person has a, is, is uh, obviously thinking through these things from the perspective that a lot of Christians fall into regarding politics. And we have to, we have to remember that when we, when we involve ourselves in the civil government of the world, the civil government of the world is not held to the same standard as the spiritual government of the world. God has established through the Noahic covenant, the covenant that he made with Noah after the flood, he has established civil order and law. Now it starts out with one law, don't kill, right? That's the first law that actually God gives in Genesis. Uh, That sets a precedent for how is God going to govern the kingdoms of this world? Then through Abraham, we get the kingdom of God and what I call the spiritual government of God over the hearts and minds of people. So you've got to understand that these two two governments, they just kind of go through the narrative of Scripture together, often interacting, often contradicting, and often cooperating. For instance, when the Jews are exiled to Babylon— it is Daniel who cooperates with the Babylonian kingdom. He is a, he's a member of God's spiritual kingdom, but he, he also cooperates. And he praises Nebuchadnezzar, who was the original egomaniacal head of state, right? So you've got Daniel, but he's cooperating and he's supporting and he's helping Nebuchadnezzar. At the same time, 
living according to a higher standard, the spiritual, God's spiritual kingdom. So there's civil kingdom, spiritual kingdom. So they, they run along in tandem, side by side, throughout narrative, the narrative of Scripture, sometimes conflicting, sometimes cooperating, and sometimes, um, sometimes contrasting each other. So, you know, you read Daniel again, and you go back to Daniel chapter 6, and he's dealing with another king with associates who set up a law that counters his spiritual kingdom law. The law is don't pray to any god but Darius, the king, and the spiritual law in Daniel supersedes the civil law in Daniel, and he, while still supporting Darius, refuses to pray to Darius because that would go against his spiritual law, and opens his windows and kneels down and prays toward Jerusalem three times a day, as was instructed by Solomon in 1 Kings. So I think Daniel is a great example for how Christians need to learn to live in their society today, Michael. I, I do. I think that he is a fantastic example because he will support these wicked and immoral, egomaniacal kings because they are part of God's civil order law. And at the same time, he will at times have to subvert their law for his personal devotion to God and for the cause of um, sustaining the kingdom of God. So helping the Jews escape. He interprets the dream for Nebuchadnezzar. Um, he, he, uh, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, they, are, they refuse to bow to Nebuchadnezzar. And at the same time, they were also higher-ups in his kingdom. So if you want to know how to live under, you know, to today's world where politics has become entertainment in many respects, it has also become like this never-ending reality TV show, <laughs> you know, where you have these bickering parties just, you know, talking bad about each other constantly. We've got to learn how to, we've got to, learn how to be Daniels. We've got to learn how to be Esther's. We've got to learn how to be um, Mordecai's who can live in exile faithfully to God and yet still support the civil structure that they feel is right for. And here's the thing. Here's Christians. What do you want to do? I want to support the, the candidate that's going to make the most room legally for the church and for the propagation of the gospel. Because that's, that's what I believe is the hope of the world. The hope of the world is not welfare. It is not helping the poor, as good as those things can be. And it is also not tax cuts for the rich. And it's not, uh, you know, stricter uh, immigration policies. The hope of the world is the gospel. I need a community, and you do, by the way, Christian. You need a church. You need a country where the gospel can be preached without fear, without intimidation, without legislation. So I go for the candidate that has, and you know, I know they all lie. I know they all lie. They all make promises. Um, some, sometimes they live up to them. Sometimes they don't. But I am going to take you most times at face value. And if you're going to support legislation that opens the doors for the gospel to be preached without hindrance, you get my vote. Now, does that mean then I become aligned with a political party so strongly that I, I start to become ardent, ardently um, attached to the philosophy of the party? No. I think that Christians have to be Daniels in the Democrat Party, and they have to be Daniels in the Republican Party, which is they could support their party's platforms while at the same time conflicting with them, challenging them, and demanding of them to more rightly align their party's platform with biblical values and with an openness to the gospel and the church. 
when you when it comes to Mitt Romney, I mean, he's irrelevant. If you live in Massachusetts, unless you live in uh, Utah, he's really irrelevant to you. So, you know, Mitt Romney lost the, the national election six years ago. He seems to still be a little bit angry about that, a little bit jealous, I think. A little bit. You know, it seems to be. Yeah. A little bit jealous of Donald I, Trump. I, I think he really I think he really wanted to be Secretary of State. Well, I tell you, I saw I saw an I saw a video of him in 2012 when he was running, praising and thanking, almost thanking God for Donald Trump. And then four years later, even before Donald Trump was in office, he was, you know, basically saying the exact opposite and vilifying Donald Trump. I think that there's, you know, and they thank God for YouTube because <laughs> everything's now recorded forever. Right. All of these people lie. They all manipulate. You've got to watch out for this. But I'm going to vote for the candidate that's going to give the most support to the freedom of the church, to the freedom of Christian faith, to preach and, and make known the name of Jesus Christ, period. Now, you, as a, I believe, as an informed vote, you should be informed. You know, that's actually, that's the one thing that I think is the real problem, is that most people do not get informed by themselves. They listen to talking points. They listen to one network, so Fox News or Amen, CNN, brother. right? They just, that's what they do, though. Yeah, they just yeah. listen to, oh, that's what, or they listen to, and especially in Massachusetts, we know this is a liberal state, this is a democratic state. There is a machine that runs the, the government of this country, of this state, so, you know, do you just listen, do you just adapt to that? Or do you, as a Christian, say, wait, I have, I've got to be a Daniel here in Massachusetts or Rhode Island. I've got to be a Daniel, and I have got to, at times, agree and cooperate, and at times, I've got to publicly conflict with the powers that be. That's being a faithful Daniel. So that's my answer to that question. Love that question. I'm a huge political junkie, and don't get me started. I could go on all day about it. So let's get to the next question so I don't do that, Michael. All right. There are several vocal Christians uh, in the bodybuilding community who clearly have had plastic surgery and take steroids. Is it okay to artificially alter our God-given bodies so long as we are not altering our minds? Um, this is a, a good question, to be honest with you, because I think that there's a yes and no here. I think that you have to absolutely take care of your body in any way that you can uh, that does not hurt your body. So the, the research is out there that steroids are detrimental to your body long term. I don't, I don't think you should do that. Um, and when it comes to plastic surgery, you know, plastic surgery is a good thing. Like, let's not be ignorant here. I think, I know a lot of people think, immediately they go to, oh, I know a plastic surgery boob job, right? They <laughs> think immediately of that. Okay, wait, wait, wait. What about the woman who had the double mastectomy because of cancer, and now they can reform the breast for her, for her womanhood for, so that she feels good about herself? That's, that's not a bad thing, okay? Um, you know, hair plugs. Some guys, they feel so bad about what's going on up here, they got to do it. I don't think that's a bad thing. I don't think that's sinful at all. Whatever you can do to, to enhance or beautify your body without hurting your body, uh, I don't think is sinful. I do think it's sinful to become obsessed, like with anything, right? With anything, you can become obsessed. So let's go back to gluttony because we just talked about it. Gluttony, what is gluttony? Gluttony is taking something that's good and making it an obsession. Food is good. Amen. And <laughs> I am a big proponent I of second food. second that. Yeah. It's my favorite hour of the day. <laughs> Three hours, okay? But anyway. You, my Chick-fil-A. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> right. So anyway, there, 
that's what gluttony is. It takes something that's good and makes it an extreme. Well, plastic surgery can be a good thing, but if you make it an extreme, now, now you need the Barbie body or now you need the the Ken Barbie, or the, I don't know, the He-Man body. You know, I, I remember that show on MTV. I forget what it was. It was about weird plastic surgery, and I remember one kid wanted calf implants. Do you remember this episode? You guys probably don't. It's no, long I don't. Long, long time I, ago. I, I know the show. I can't remember the name, but... Yeah, he couldn't, <laughs> no matter how much he worked out, he couldn't get his calves to be big enough. So he wanted the doctor to stick plastic in there. Uh, to me, <laughs> that becomes a little bit like you're obsessed and you need to, you need to maybe walk away. Um, and then it's a matter of financial stewardship because these are not cheap and they are not typically covered by uh, health insurance. So you need to be careful there. Are you being a good steward of God's money? You know, uh, are you tithing? Are you supporting the ministry of the gospel? And are you then, after your bills are paid and your food is paid for and your kids are cared for, you know, then you're pursuing these things that enhance you that might be artificial but not obnoxious. I think that there's a lot of leeway there when it comes to Christians of the bodybuilding community. You know, I don't know what to say about those who are doing steroids. I think they're nuts. I think it's crazy to do steroids. I think you're playing with fire. Uh, and all the researchers out there uh, backs that up. So be careful, Christians. Christians kill themselves and hurt themselves in any number of ways. That's just one. So that's my answer. Um, hope it helps. I'm glad that you asked these questions. I just, I don't know. Something about questions, they just, I love it. Keep them coming. Thank you so much. Can we put that slide back up there uh, of the, of the um, ask anything? Here we go. Uh, 508-316-9333 or ask at deepend.tv. Send them our way. I look forward to getting more of them. And we will be right back after this message with the Book of Acts. The Deep End with Tim Hatch is made possible by contributions from listeners and viewers like you. If you'd like to partner with us to support this ministry, you can go to thedeepend.tv slash partner or on the Cash app with the cash tag, TV. Here we are in the book of Acts in Acts chapter 9. Finally, after three weeks in Acts chapter 8, because so much happened there, we are now turning the page to Acts chapter 9, and the title of this talk is The Joy of Self-Defeat. Yes, counterintuitive title, counterintuitive message, but the joy of self-defeat, and I've also subtitled it, or uh, this, or why (laughs) self-righteousness is so depressing. Acts chapter 9 is the infamous moment of the conversion of Christianity's first and most ardent enemy, Saul of Tarsus. Outside of Jesus Christ, no human being has had more impact on human history than Saul of Tarsus. And that is not an understatement. No human being ever, outside of Jesus Christ, has had more influence on the world than this man we meet in Acts chapter 9. Actually, we met him in Acts chapter uh, 7 and 8 when Stephen was dying. But now we get to know him more from here on out in the book of Acts. He called himself the apostle to the Gentiles. That's why uh, he's the second most important person in human history, because without him, the gospel does not go beyond Judaism. And it's kind of ironic because he was the most Jew, the most Jewish Jew of his generation. 
And yet he becomes the guy who sends the message of Jesus to everybody outside of the Jews. This is so cool. This is how God works. Without the moment that we're about to talk about in Acts chapter 9, we're not here. You're not listening. You're not watching. The deep end doesn't exist. Churches, as far as we know, does not, do not exist. But God chose to use this man, this, this, this Christianity-hating, Christian-killing man to become its most important uh, missionary. So we turn a page in the book of Acts, in Acts chapter 9, because when Paul gets saved, it starts to open the floodgates of the gospel toward the Gentiles. Because there's only two groups of people according to the Old Testament. There's Jews and Gentiles. That's it. Okay? So Paul, Saul, formerly Saul, is the one who opens the door for you and I, Gentiles, to come into a relationship with the living God of Israel. Now, I've titled this talk The Joy of Self-Defeat because there's an issue in the apostle, well, Saul of Tarsus. Before I call him the apostle Paul, I should keep calling him Saul of Tarsus because that's who he is so far. There's an issue for, this, for Saul of Tarsus that is true for all of us. Here's what his issue was. Here's what our issue is. Are you ready for it? Here it is. Everyone is self-righteous in some way. Everyone is self-righteous in some way. I'm going to explain. Does this offend you, by the way? Does that offend you? Do you know why it offends you? Because you are self-righteous. There you go, okay? So if you just got offended by that, you, friend, watching me right now, you are self-righteous. You are. I am self-righteous. I My natural bent is self-righteousness. So is yours. And I want to say something so that we're all on the same page. You do not have to be a Christian to be self-righteous. You do not even have to be a religious person to be self-righteous. You don't have to be believe in anything to be self-righteous, anything spiritual or supernatural to be self-righteous. Some of the most self-righteous people on the face of the earth are ardent, secular atheists who belittle people of faith and look down their nose at them and call them names and <clears throat> encourage their followers to shame them and mock them and, uh, and, and criticize them. I am thinking of the ardent atheist and secularist Richard Dawkins from Oxford University who got in trouble a few years ago, maybe about 10 years ago now, for telling atheists that when they, are, when they meet Christians, they should mock them, ridicule them. That's how you should respond to people who don't believe like you. What is the problem there? The, is the problem that he's telling them to mock? No, the problem is why? The root, the root of the sin. The, the issue of self-righteousness. He, as a secular atheist, so convinced that God does not exist and religion is foolish, all religions are foolish, therefore has the moral high ground to look down his nose at anybody who disagrees and anybody who thinks differently than him. He has become completely self-righteous. Now, not just atheists, <laughs> believe me, if anybody has got the trademark on mastering self-righteousness, it is Christians Oh, I have been around these people long enough to know that we have a serious self-righteous problem, okay? It is never seeming to go away. We seek self-righteousness all the time uh, in what we do as Christians because here's what I see with the Christian trajectory. You're unsaved. Uh, God saves you. You come into Christ. You come into faith. You start to go to church. 
things start to change. You start to become a better person. Um, you're not doing the things that you used to do as a non-Christian. Now you're, instead of drinking too much, now you're reading your Bible. Uh, instead of partying, instead of uh, you know, lusting, now you're going to church all the time. And it just happens very subconsciously that the self-righteousness of the, the Christian self-righteousness starts to grow. And before you know it, you think you're better than everybody else. You ever run into one of these people? You, you ever run into a Christian that, that starts to believe that they're better than other people? Okay, completely self-righteous. So I, I've seen this my whole life. I've seen it in my own self. Now, we seek self-righteousness beyond Christian faith. We seek self-righteousness in friends and relationships. When I say self-righteousness, I know this, this term is tied to Christianity, but let's, this, let's detach it from Christianity for a moment. Let me call it self-justification. I, I, I refer to them as self-justifying programs. We all have a self-justifying programs. In other words, I need to make my life count, make my life feel like it, it matters, give myself value, or at least believe I am a person of value. So I will turn to friends and relationships. And the more friends and relationships that I can have and maintain, the more, oh, that makes, that makes me a worthwhile person, a valuable person. That's just a self-righteous, self-justifying program. Or we seek it in accomplishments and education the more degrees that I can have. Look, I know a lot of people, they're addicted to school because school gives them that degree, that, 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 that fabled certificate, that fabled Bachelor of Arts or, or Master of Arts or, or Doctor of, and, and they just love it. And, and these people are the ones that are on LinkedIn with all their little initials out of them after their name. They're always talking about, this is what I am. Look at what I just, the, these are the people that have to post all those accomplishments on their, on their Instagram. They've got to justify themselves. We seek it in advancement and achievement. We seek it in our moral performance, religious or non-religious, okay? We are looking for someone to justify us, something or someone that would justify us, something that makes us us. And here's what God loves to do for those that he calls to himself. He loves to demolish our self-righteous spirit. And the archetype picture in human history for God's process of destroying self-righteousness is in Saul of Tarsus. So let's get the map out because everybody loves maps, right? <laughs> let's take a look. We'll put this full screen. This is um, where Saul famously goes from, if you're following me on, on the video, and uh, if you're not, you should at youtube.com slash the deep end TV. He goes from Jerusalem, which is down here uh, in Judea, and he travels up to Damascus. And there's a good chance that he went across the Jordan River this way and then went up. Because why? Samaria. And Jews did not talk to Samaritans. Faithful Jews did not talk to Samaritans because they were considered half-breeds and immoral. So he goes east and north to, to the area of Damascus. Now, what, uh, what's important about Damascus? Because this is, this is more than just... Oh, there's another. There's another map. Okay, so here we go. Here's Jerusalem down here. It's just a wider, wider angled uh, map. Damascus is up here. By the way, Saul of Tarsus on our map here is up here. It is the capital of Cilicia. It was also like the capital of Eastern Rome, really, in the ancient world. But anyway, Damascus. This is a famous nomenclature, right? Road to Damascus. There's a book out about it. There's a, there's a movie named Road to Damascus. Why? Because of this moment in Acts chapter 9. And it's a distance about 150 miles, and Saul is traveling by foot. It probably would have taken him about two weeks to get there. Uh, this is what the area looks like today. We can put that on the screen. I've been there, and uh, it is actually quite beautiful. 
But Damascus is mentioned in the book of Acts, not by accident. Jesus meets Paul on the road to Damascus on purpose. And you say, well, why? Because Damascus uh, was the first place mentioned in the book of Acts outside of Jerusalem, outside of Israel, that had a Christian uh, community. This is important. This is so cool. What you see in Damascus is the seeds of what Paul's whole life mission is going to be about, taking the gospel out of outside of Israel, beyond Israel, to who? The Gentiles. And so it's kind of cool that Jesus meets his chosen instrument to bring the gospel to the Gentiles on the road to the first church established amongst the Gentiles. That, to me, is just super, super cool. So back up on the screen here, just so we know, what we're going to look at from Acts chapter 9 is Paul goes from Jerusalem to uh, Damascus. He meets Christ. He gets saved. Then he's going to make his way back to Jerusalem, and then he's going to go to Caesarea eventually, and then eventually he's going to go back home to Tarsus. And we're going to end our talk there when we get to Acts uh, 9.32. Okay, there you go. There's the map. Now you know. Um, let me say one more thing before we get into the topic. The second most mentioned event in the New Testament, do you know what it is? The first most mentioned event is the resurrection of Jesus Christ, right? That should be obvious. Without the resurrection, this whole faith falls apart. So that should be number one, right? Resurrection of Jesus Christ, the most mentioned event in the entire New Testament. But did you know that the second most mentioned event in the New Testament is the conversion of Saul of Tarsus. To me, that's cool. <laughs> that's a little cool factoid, but it's an important re- there's an important reason for why it is the second most mentioned event in the New Testament. Because it illustrates perfectly our main theme today, and it illustrates it more brilliantly than any other event in the New Testament. And that is that in order for God to save you, He has to crush your self-righteousness. He has to do it. I want to put it up on the screen here so it's clear. In order to be saved, okay, you have to surrender your feeble attempts at self-righteous behavior. The only way you become a Christian is when you realize that nothing you do actually does justify you. Before the eyes of others, before yourself, and especially before God. Isaiah, that famous passage in Isaiah 3, that all of our righteous acts are as filthy rags to a holy, righteous God. And Saul's conversion is the most brilliantly, clearly, definitive moment that illustrates the destruction of self-righteousness and the turning of a man who is so full of himself into a man who is emptied of himself and longing for the fullness of God in the person of Jesus Christ. Now, I tell you this again because it is so important. You do not have to be a Christian to be self-righteous. I I say this at our church all the time. The, 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 The number one religion in America is not Christianity. It is, I'm a good personism. I'm a good personism has claimed more souls to hell than any other religion on the planet. 
the I'm a good personism has one law. It is really simple. It is be good. That's it. And if you're good, you go to heaven. A recent survey in Pew Research Center's 2014 religious landscape study found 72% of Americans believe in heaven, and it is defined as the place where people who have led good lives are eternally rewarded. So that's what heaven is. It is all about rewards for your good behavior here, okay? In other words, heaven is the eternal gold star. Remember gold stars from third grade, right? Heaven is where God just keeps going. Man, another gold star and another gold star. Oh, and you helped that lady go across the street. Oh, another gold star. Oh, and you didn't kick your dog that day you were mad. Another gold star. Okay, that's garbage. (laughs) That is not what heaven is. And it is not for good people. It's not. I I hate to say, I hate to burst your bubble, but there's going to be a lot of bad people in heaven. I think that when you get to heaven, you're going to be shocked. And who's there? And you're going to be equally shocked at who's not there because we don't get to heaven by being good. And this should blow away the idea that, that all religions make it to, uh, end up in heaven. All religions lead to heaven. That's baloney, the garbage. Because Christians don't even believe religion gets you to heaven. Christians believe Jesus brings you to heaven, not because of your good works. Now, when it comes to I'm a good personism, And you say, well, I just have to be good and I'll get to heaven. Okay, well, here's the question that you have to ask. Actually, answer. Here's the question that you have to answer. What is a good person? Because if you think that you are a good person, my question to you is, well, what makes you good? And and I'm sure this person is going to say the basic, the the, the two great commandments is, well, I've never killed anybody. (laughs) Which, by the way, is like the lion's share of the human population. You know, I think it's like 99% of the human population has never killed anybody. Okay, so 99% of people are going to heaven because they haven't killed anybody? Like, that's the only one? All right, so I haven't killed anybody or I haven't cheated on my wife. And if cheating on your wife is, is in the law, man, watch out. Like, that means that hardly anybody's going because the, <laughs> the adultery statistics are astronomically high in this country, actually, in human history. So here's the thing. What is a good person? If you're saying, I'm going to heaven because I'm a good person, well, then by what measurement are you establishing that fact? Every society has determined that they think they know what good is. Did you, did, are you aware of this? Even what your idea right now, even what your concept of being a good person is, is actually, by and large, influenced by the culture in which you were raised. I will prove it to you. Because right now in America, if you, if you uh, love your enemies, most Americans will say, that's a very good thing, that's very noble. Do not retaliate against your against your enemy. But if you go to the Middle East and you try to tell Middle Eastern people, whether Jews or Arabs or Muslims or Palestinians, and you tell them, hey, love your enemies, they'll tell you, no, that's not in our holy book. No, no, no. We're going to hate them because we're supposed to hate them because they're not like us. And they have determined that hating their enemies is a moral good. And if you take yourself out of your little American bubble right now, American Christian, and you plant yourself in almost any other culture in human history, I guarantee you, you will have an entirely different set of moral commandments that you feel obligated to live up to in order to describe yourself as a good person. I'll give you some examples, even from this country. You don't even have to leave the country. You can just go back in time in this country. Go back to the 1800s, where in the South, in this country, Gospel preachers in churches, in pulpits in the South, were telling people that just that slavery is actually a very biblical thing. That enslaving African Americans and Africans 
and 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 bringing them over in slave ships and then enslaving them into the cotton trade of the South, preachers in the pulpits of America, of America's churches, were saying, and this is God's will. Were they right? No. How do we know that they were right? Weren't right? Because time has told us, because we came to our senses, because good won over evil. But back in those days, those people thought they were doing something that was good. A lot of people did. Um, right now, and I always bring this up, abortion. For some people, think some people think abortion is a healthcare procedure. It is not. It is the murder of the innocent child in the womb. It is murder of the innocent. There's a lot of Christians that believe it's okay. I don't understand Christians who think abortion is okay. What, what Have you read up on this? Are you informed about this issue? Do you know what's happening? Do you know that there's research now that comes out that says at 12 weeks, a child in the womb feels pain? Are you okay with that child in the womb who feels pain being dismembered piece by piece by forceps and, 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 and uh, knives in the hands of a doctor? Are you in favor? Of that? I mean, come on. Right now, though, there's a host of Americans who believe that that is a moral good. I'm going to promise you that in about 100 years, the abortion will be, such, will be on the same level as slavery. I guarantee it. It's just a matter of time, in my opinion. And the trajectory of the, of the uh, survey of America's young is actually supporting my belief. Uh, this next generation coming up after millennials is predominantly pro-life, if you, if you believe the research that I've looked at. Anyway... Let's go back, let's do something a little bit lighter because those are some heavy topics. How about smoking? Did you know that in the 1950s in this country, doctors prescribed cigarettes? <laughs> they were like, oh, you get a sore throat? Here, have a, have a cig, right? There, there was advertisements in papers for, for cigarette companies recommended by doctors. At, in the 1950s, doctors believed that cigarette smoking was a moral good. So kind of blows away your concept of what good personism is, doesn't it? Because isn't it fair to suggest that at this present moment in your life, there are things that you think you're doing that are good that are actually evil? Yes, it is. And so God in the gospel comes and demolishes our self-righteousness. This is what he does with Saul. This is why Saul's conversion is the second most mentioned event in the entire New Testament. Because until you come to the end of your self-righteousness, you will never receive Christ's righteousness. Oh, that'll preach somewhere. Come on, somebody. Okay. <laughs> if anybody had the right to think he was self-righteous, it was Saul. Let me run down his pre-Christ resume, okay? Born in Tarsus. Uh, that, again, the eastern kind of capital of Rome, the Roman Empire in Cilicia. It was the educational center. It was famous for its scholarship. Uh, it actually surpassed Athens and Alexandria as cities uh, of the, of the, as the seat of learning. Saul may not have gone to the universities there, but he was in that culture, and he was also a Roman citizen because he was born there. Um, so he had that going for him. But he also says he was circumcised on the eighth day. Now, we, we go to Philippians 3 for this information. Circumcised on the eighth day. What does that mean? Why is that important? Because that means that both parents were committed to the law. They, they both held to Judaism, both parents. So, you know, if you have a parent who's Jew and not Jew, one of them's going to argue, and he may not get circumcised in the eighth day. He might get circumcised as an adult. Well, Paul's telling you, both my parents were, Jew, were Jews. I, not just me. I was born a Jew. Then he says of the people of Israel, which means I was, I was uh, 
I'm, I'm, I'm a member of the chosen race that God chose out of all the nations of the world to speak to and reveal himself to. He says, I'm of the tribe of Benjamin. And we just leave this slide up for this whole talk here. The tribe of Benjamin, which was the second most important tribe in Israel's history. It was the one of two tribes that stuck with David. Uh, and by the way, it was the tribe from which the first king of Israel came, Saul. And ironically named uh, the, the, the name, the name that, uh, that Saul bears himself. Uh, he says, I was a Hebrew of Hebrews, which means I'm not, just, I'm not just a chosen member of God's chosen race. I'm a chosen part of the chosen race. Like Hebrews were always the, the, the unique people of God. He's telling you, I am the unique out of the unique. Well, what does that mean? Well, he was a Pharisee. And he says this in Acts chapter 25, uh, 26, verse 5, and elsewhere, we know that he was a Pharisee. The Pharisees were, according to Acts 26, verse 5, the strictest party of the Jewish faith. So think of fundamental Baptists, right? The people that don't drink, smoke, Jew, go with girls who do, the people who are the most spiritual, the most, the most biblical, the most chapter and verse knowledgeable people on the planet who never do anything. They don't even play poker. They don't even play, they don't, they don't even play dice because they're so holy. That's the Pharisees, okay? Okay, and that's what, he did. that's what he had going for him. Then he says, I was trained by Gamaliel. Gamaliel was the uh, respected member of the Sanhedrin. We talked about him in an early episode in this season uh, in the book of Acts, back in Acts chapter 5. He, was, he says in Galatians 1.14 that he was advancing beyond all of his countrymen, all the people of his own age. So he was not just good at Judaism. He was the valedictorian of his class and extremely, by his own words, Galatians 1.14, extremely zealous for the traditions of his fathers. Okay? This guy would have made Reptevier very proud. <laughs> Reptevier? Fiddler on the roof? Okay. Moving on. He's a persecutor of the church, and that just means that he had this zeal for the purity of the Jewish faith. You know, there's a lot, there's a long history in the Jewish faith of, of men, great men, honored and revered men who killed for God's glory. We mentioned one last week, Elijah. Elijah slaughtered the prophets of Baal, slaughtered them. Okay, I know, I know we don't put that on the flannel graph in Sunday school. <laughs> Elijah with a knife out, killing the prophets. But he slaughtered and killed for God's glory and for the purity of Israel. Uh, Phineas, uh, who, 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 Th uh, thrust the spear through the uh, fornicating Israelite in Numbers. Uh, Math uh, Math uh, Mattathias, he was the father of the Maccabees. These, these people went to war to kill in the name of purifying Israel from, its, uh, from, from those who would compromise the faith. So when he says, I went out and persecuted the church, he's actually saying, yeah, I'm just like I was just like Elijah, man. I was just like Phineas. I was zealous, man. I wanted Israel to be pure and keep it from all blemish. And then he says, under the law, blameless. Now, that does not mean he did not sin. It just means that he followed the procedures for when he sinned. He offered the right sacrifices, and he says, I did it all. I followed the feast days. I followed the sacrifice observance. I followed all the Old Testament observance for what made a Jew a good Jew. So you have to understand, and now you can come back to me on the screen, you have to understand that, Paul, that Saul of Tarsus had every right to feel like he was right, like he was righteous in himself. Okay, so that's setting it up. Let's get into the text. Acts 9, 1 to 2. But Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, 
went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues at Damascus so that if he found any belonging to the way, men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. Okay, just want to point out a couple of things about this text. It says, breathing threats and murder. Uh, earlier in Acts chapter 8, verse 3, it says that Saul was ravaging the church. The word ravaging means uh, brutal and sadistic cruelty. This guy, you would not have wanted to meet him before he met Christ. He was, uh, he was a death wish for you as a Christian. Now, it also says, but Saul, in the beginning of this text, because remember that we have just talked about, in Acts chapter 8, the uh, Samaritans coming to Christ, the healings and the miracles performed by Philip, Philip, and then Philip goes and ministers to this Ethiopian eunuch, and so you see this beautiful picture, and I want to just paint something here. You see this beautiful picture, this back and forth in the book of Acts, where people are getting saved, healed, delivered, changed, God's reaching out to different kinds of people. Uh, the outsiders are coming in. The eunuchs are getting families. Beautiful things are happening. But at the same time, and it always is like this, but at the same time, the church is under attack and threat. Ladies and gentlemen, that's how it's been for 2,000 years. While we will see people come to Christ and beautiful things will happen and the church will grow and we'll see salvations and we'll see people coming to Christ in our churches, at the same time, the church will be vilified, attacked, sometimes sometimes in history more than others, but constantly. There will always be attacks on the church, I think, especially of our brothers and sisters right now in Iran, uh, in, in Nigeria, in Pakistan, in India, where laws are being put on the books now to uh, threaten the church's rights and, and, and uh, freedoms. So we have to understand that it's both ends in all generations. But I want to note that little word there, breathing threats, because it's an important concept for us to understand. Hostility to Christ is more than physical. Hostility toward Christ is spiritual. Breathing here is important because it's saying Paul didn't just threaten them. It, <clears throat> it came from his breath. It came from his spirit. Okay, He felt that Christians weren't worthy of living. It's a spiritual attack against the church. And um, <clears throat> the next thing I want to mention as I just take a drink of water for a second is that there is nothing about Paul here, Saul, sorry, that suggests he was seeking Jesus, that he had a God-shaped hole in his heart, <laughs> that he felt lost, that he felt like he needed more, that he was down and out and looking for love in all the wrong places and he just needed someone to really love. No. In other words, there is nothing about the Apostle Paul that we tend to think actually leads people to Jesus Christ. Why do I emphasize that? Because salvation is a work of God. <laughs> no one in human history wanted to be a Christian less than Saul of Tarsus. And yet, Jesus saved him. This story is a picture of the sovereign grace of God that saves people who aren't looking to be saved. This is an important text for us. It is so important. Let's go on. Verse 3. Now as he went on his way, he approached Damascus, and suddenly a light from heaven shone around him. And falling to the ground, he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Now, you know, it's, it's got to be Jesus because Jesus is the only one who double names you. <laughs> Martha, Martha, you are concerned about many things. You know, uh, uh, Peter, Peter, you know. Anyway, uh, 
Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus whom you are persecuting. Now, I, I know where a lot of you Christians come down on this text right now. You go to this text for the wrong thing. You go to this text for something that says this. When you hurt Christians, you're hurting Christ. See, because Jesus says, you're persecuting me. You hurt my people, you're persecuting me. Now, is that true? Yeah, it is true. But that's not the main event of the story. Please don't miss the forest for the trees here. This story is not about what Saul is doing to Jesus. This story, wonderfully, is about what Jesus is doing to Saul. And that is, he is knocking him off of his self-righteous pedestal. This is a story about God's sovereign grace to undeserving sinners. And this happens in every generation, in every nation. I think about the, the late, great English journalist Malcolm Muggeridge, who was a popular satirist in, in England. And he, uh, at, in his younger days, he was a communist. And then he visited the Soviet Union and got scared straight. Uh, and then became this ardent proponent of freedom and, of course, a great journalist in, in, in English uh, history. But he talks about how he, he didn't want anything to do with Christ. It was Christ who wanted something to do with him. And, and, he, and he says, this is his own quote, I had a notion that somehow, besides questing, I was being pursued, footsteps padding behind me, a following shadow, a hound of heaven, so near that I could feel the warm breath on my neck. I was also in flight, chasing and being chased, the pursuing and the pursuit the quest and the flight, merging at last into one single imminence or luminosity. In other words, I didn't want God. I ran from him. He chased me down. He caught me. He turned me around. I think more recently of Kanye West, Justin Bieber, Selena Gomez, these celebrities who are coming to Christ, talking about how it is not them who came to Christ. It is Christ who came to them and caused them to come to Christ. There's a great and important question that Augustine, a church father, asked about this moment in the Apostle Paul's in the Apostle Paul's life, Saul of Tarsus' life. He says this: For what merits of good will did God convert Saul? For what merits of good will did God convert Saul? And the answer is none. Because he has to be the archetype. He has to be the picture of what salvation is all about. You do not get saved because you are good. I'm a good personism is worth nothing in the economy of heaven. He saves you in spite of you. He saves you because he loves and he chooses to save you, and he's gracious, and he's kind, and he's merciful. Okay, moving on. Verse 6, but rise and enter the city, and you will be told what you are to do. The men who were traveling with him stood speechless, hearing the voice, but seeing no one. Saul, uh, Saul rose from the ground, and although his eyes were open, he saw nothing. So they led him by the hand and brought him to Damascus, and for three days he was without sight, and neither ate nor drank. Now, this text these verses are so important because what you see here is a 180-degree turn in every sense for Saul of Tarsus. First off, Jesus says, rise and enter the city, and you are going to be told what you are to do, <laughs> which I'm sure that totally cut across the grain of Saul's natural inclinations. I am the one that tells other people what to do. Now you're going to tell me I'm going to be told what to do? Like, think about it, 180-degree turn. This is what conversion is. By the way, this is what Christianity does. Christianity converts people. Christianity converts people. These people that run around and say, I don't want to get converted. Okay, watch out for that. Because you don't convert yourself. And you don't get converted. God converts you. <laughs> he, just, he just converts, okay? This is what Christianity does. And so it says this. Uh, he was riding high on his self-righteous anger. Now he's knocked to the ground. By the way, he wasn't on a horse. I know there's this popular cultural 
you know, image of Saul riding on his horse and suddenly the light shines down and he's knocked off the horse. There's no, there's no horse mentioned here. He might have been on a horse, but anyway, he was knocked down to the ground. This is a picture. This is a picture of his pride being crushed. And he was the one so sure of who he was and how he saw the world. Now he's blind. Now he's blind. The one who thinks he can see is now made blind, meeting Christ. And he who was leading a band of men to arrest others, he who was leading a band of men to arrest others, now he is arrested. Now he has to be led by the hand into the city. This is so, so beautiful. Now I got a question, and I'm sure you might be asking this question right now about Paul, about Saul. And this question is important. Is conversion always so immediate and overwhelming? And the answer is no. Like this is not, Acts chapter 9 is descriptive, is not prescriptive. In other words, not everybody comes to this Paul, uh, road to Damascus type of conversion. In fact, very few people do. Saul's an outlier here. Um, most of the times, most of the time, people get converted over the course of time. C.S. Lewis is a great example of this. C.S. Lewis, who was an ardent atheist, uh, had a friend named J.R. Tolkien, uh, author of Lord of the Rings, had conversations with him, um, had other friends who were Christians. And, you know, he talks about being the most reluctant convert in all of England when he finally bowed the knee to Jesus in, in uh, May of 1929. Uh, but he also talks about how he, he was, it was a process. And he, he compared God to a master chess player who put all the pieces of his life into the positions necessary to force him to say, checkmate. Like, that's a beautiful picture. But it was a process. Even Acts describes people coming to Christ mostly through a process. There's a few outliers where it's like instantaneous conversion. But, but here it is. And then in Acts chapter 17, like it talks about Paul going to Thessalonica and reasoning from the scriptures that Jesus was with Christ for three weekends on the Sabbath day. And in verse 17 of Acts chapter, in verse 4 of Acts chapter 17, it says, and some of them were persuaded. Persuaded, the key word persuaded. It took time. This is why one of our emphasis at Waters Church here is that we just want people to come back to the services. I, I don't care what you believe. I don't care what lifestyle you think you're going to live. I don't care how much you might not like what we have to say. Look, all we ask you to do is just come back. Just keep coming. Come back the way you are. And you know what? Even come back and refuse to change. That's fantastic. God can change. <laughs> but anyway, most people, no, it's not immediate. It's, it's, it's um, procedural. It's, it's uh, eventual. Anyway, moving on. Verse 10. Now there was a disciple at Damascus named Ananias. And the Lord said to him in a vision, Ananias. And he said, here I am, Lord. And the Lord said to him, rise and go to the street called Straight. And at the house of Judas, look for a man of Tarsus named Saul. For behold, he is praying. And he has seen in a vision a man named Ananias come in and lay his hands on him so that he might regain his sight. What you are being asked to see in this text is a couple things. Number one, God is at work throughout the whole process. This is God's work on Saul's life. And by the way, your salvation is God's work on your life. Why do I always emphasize this stuff? Because salvation should make you grateful. It really should. Christians should be grateful. God has saved them. God worked to bring them to the end of themselves and into himself. And, 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 and to himself. Now, the second thing that you want to see here is, did you notice the names that are mentioned? This is kind of cool. I had never seen this before until this week when I prepared this talk. Ananias and Judas. Those are not great names in Christian history, are they? <laughs> Ananias is the guy who lied about selling the land for a certain price and then ended up falling down dead and then taking his wife with him uh, at the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit literally killed him, okay? And then Judas. Hello? <laughs> The guy who betrayed Jesus for 30 pieces of silver and ended up hanging himself. So 
what else am I asked to see in this text? I think it's a beautiful picture of the grace of God who is redeeming these names. So yeah, yeah, maybe they had the same names, but they weren't the same character. Maybe for some of you, that's what you need to hear. You, you don't have to live up to what other people call you or what you might be named. God can rename you. God can rebrand your name. Uh, interestingly enough today, in the city of Damascus, there is a chapel called the Ananias Chapel. So for all the bad press the name of Ananias gets from Acts chapter 5, we should give it the cred that it deserves here in Acts chapter 9. He's a good dude, Ananias. This is a different Ananias, but a good guy. All right, Ananias answered as anybody would in verse 13. Lord, I have heard about this man, how much evil he's done to your saints. And he has authority from the chief priests to bind all who call on your name. The Lord said to him, go, he's a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel, for I will show him how much he must suffer for my name. Ananias is like you and me. We'd be like, no way, I ain't talking to that guy. He came here to kill me. Now you want me to go pray for him? Are you nuts? But the Lord says, no, no, no. I've chosen him. Now, what we are asked to see here in this text is that the first interaction that Saul is having upon conversion is the loving ministry of the saints. Isn't that cool? He's, he's experiencing the hospitality of the saints. Uh, Judas is hosting him. Ananias is going to come pray for him. So he's got Christians who are just starting to invest in his life. And he's starting to see the love of Jesus expressed through the community of faith. This is a beautiful thing. And it's kind of helpful for you to think about, we talked about this last week, that when you share your faith or when you serve Christ, you are not, you are not um, instigating God to do something. You are partnering with what God is already doing. You are involved in his process to save people. Let's move on. Verse 17. So Ananias departed and entered the house. And laying his hands on him, he said, Brother Saul, and that's just a wonderful term of endearment there, Right away, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus who appeared to you on the road by which you came has sent me to you that, he, that you may regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. Hey, let's pause there for a second because I thought about this. He says, he starts right off with the uh, Brother Saul. And I think that we would do a, a lot of good, Christians, if we started with uh, words of inclusion rather than exclusion. When, when, when somebody's coming to Christ, when we see someone new, the more we can more quickly identify them as partners and brothers and family members. I think that's healthy. I think that's beneficial to the message of Jesus. Anyway, verse 18, immediately something like scales fell from his eyes and he regained his sight. Then he rose and was baptized. There it is again, by the way, all you hesitant Baptist baptism candidates. There it is. As soon as he is saved, he is baptized. And then taking food, he was strengthened. Okay, so you've got this beautiful picture of the church loving Paul into the process of discipleship through Judas, through Ananias. So now verse 19, he's changed. This is the 180 degree turn. Verse 19 says, For some days he was with the disciples at Damascus, and immediately he proclaimed Jesus in the synagogue, saying, He is the Son of God. And all who heard him were amazed and said, Is this not the man who made havoc in Jerusalem on those who, who called upon this name? And has he not come here for this purpose to bring them bound before the chief priests? But Saul increased all the more in strength and confounded the Jews who lived in Damascus by proving that Jesus was the Christ. This is the ironic conclusion of the story, which is that the city that he went to to arrest Christians and bring them to trial in Jerusalem and ultimately kill them becomes the very first place where he starts to proclaim Jesus. Again, that first city outside of Israel with a Christian community, the Gentile area. This is one of the great benefits, by the way, of having your self-righteousness defeated 
Because when you don't have self-righteousness about what you think, the life that you think you should have to justify you, to make you who you are, when you lose that, when that's no longer like the goal, you're now freed to actually find out what God's goal is for you. This is the coolest part of the story, in my opinion. I want to put it like this. A life that's set free from the offerings of this world is empowered to give the world what God offers the world. Or another way to say it. A life set free from the offerings of this world is empowered to challenge and change this world. And that's what you have here in the Apostle Paul. Because he lost the life that he thought he should have, this Hebrew of Hebrews, this uh, aspiring, wonderful educated Pharisee, this best of the best, you know, uh, Jew in his time, because God crushed that out of his life, suddenly he was freed to do what God wanted him to do, which is proclaim Christ, and to proclaim, proclaim Christ without fear, without, without, without um, being intimidated by enemies. This is, this is a beautiful picture of what Jesus talked about in Matthew chapter 16, verse 25, when he said, whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. What does Jesus mean by that? It means that when you get to the end of yourself, you find him, and he makes you what you should be. The end of self-righteousness is the beginning of God's righteousness. Moving on in the story. Verse 23. When many days had passed, the Jews plotted to kill him, but their plot became known to Saul. They were watching at the gates day and night in order to kill him, but his disciples, now he's already got disciples, this is so cool, like right away into making disciples. His disciples took him by night and let him down through an opening in the wall, lowering him in a basket. Oh, by the way, it's not right away, it's about three years later because he talks about the time frame in Galatians chapter one. But anyway, I just think about the fact that he had to be lowered in a basket. This is the guy who was large and in charge, and now he's being hidden in a basket. (laughs) How humiliating for a a grown man to be put into a basket and lowered down the wall. But I want you to see also how Scripture beautifully comes together here. Who else was put into a basket for his own safety? Moses. What did Moses end up doing? He became the chosen instrument to bring the Word of God to God's people in his day. Here's the Apostle Paul being delivered through a basket, and he is God's chosen instrument in the New Covenant to bring God's word to his people in his day. By the way, one-third of the New Testament is written by the Apostle Paul. The first five books of the Bible, written by the the man named Moses, saved by the basket. One-third of the New Testament, written by the man named Saul or Paul. one-third One-third of the New Testament. Pretty cool. Anyway, moving on. Verse 26, And when he had come to Jerusalem, he attempted to join the disciples, and they were all afraid of him. Of course they were for they did not believe that he was a disciple. Now, this is after three years of him being up in Damascus in, in, in Arabia. He talks about that in Genesis, uh, Galatians 1. But Barnabas took him. I love Barnabas. We need more Barnabases. Barnabas took him and brought him to the apostles and declared to them how on the road he had seen the Lord who spoke to him and how at Damascus he had preached boldly in the name of Jesus. We need a Barnabas-type spirit, son of encouragement. Remember him? He was the one who sold the land. He was the former Levite, and, 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 and he's the one who encourages the, he, he just, he's an encourager. He's a guy who encourages people in the faith. We need more of those people. Some of you, that's your spiritual gift. You need to start operating in it. You need to start just encouraging your, if you're a boss, encourage your employees. If you're in marriage, encourage your spouse, encourage your kids. You, you never know what's going to happen on the other end of that encouragement. Let's move forward. Verse 28. So he went in and out among them at Jerusalem, preaching boldly in the name of the Lord, 
And he spoke and disputed against the Hellenists. And that's important. Because who were the Hellenists? The Hellenists were the ones who put Stephen to death. The, the, and remember, when Stephen was put to death, what did they do with the coats? They put it at the feet of, of Saul slash Paul. Okay? So, again, a full 180-degree turnaround for this ardent enemy of the faith that he's now saying, I'm going to actually go up against the people that I used to be with. And that's what Christianity does to you, friend. You, you, when you get saved, you are going to suddenly realize that the people that you used to be with are now on the, actually on, on the opposite side of where you now are. And anyway, he opposed the uh, uh, Hellenists, but they were seeking to kill him. This guy's making more enemies than friends suddenly. And when the brothers learned of this, they brought him down to Caesarea and sent him off to Tarsus. In other words, they said, go home. Two things that helped Saul, by the way, on the way to his ultimate destiny. Number one, food. And number two, rest. And I think this is an important thing that we miss. After the whole blinding moment and after getting baptized, he has some food. Food is spiritual. <laughs> And he restores his health. And then even now, as he's making all these enemies and he's going to get, you know, he's going to burn out. What does he do? He's, he goes home to Tarsus. He probably has friends that he can hang out with and, and you know, bunk up with and, and, and that sort of thing. And so he's going to get rest. And sometimes as Christians, we need to learn the value of rest and food and getting refreshed before we go out there and change the world for Jesus. Uh, verse 31 Last verse we're going to look at. So the church throughout all Judea and Galilee and Samaria had peace and was being built up and walking in the fear of the Lord and the comfort of the Holy Spirit, it multiplied. And again, there's that word. Here it is again. The church is growing. The church is multiplying. God takes the most ardent enemy of the church and says, you know what? I'm going to actually just turn him around and use him for my purposes. And now the church, the ultimate purpose of Paul's Saul's, Paul's salvation is for the multiplication of the church, which, by the way, is the ultimate purpose for your salvation, so that the church can experience peace, be built up, and multiply. So my question to you is, what are you doing to help the church multiply? What are you giving? How are you serving? How are you losing yourself to make Jesus known to others? And, and this is the big point. This is the joy and I close all this up by saying this. This is the joy of losing yourself. Three points. Number one, when you lose yourself, as Saul slash Paul does here in this text, we can experience the joy of Christ's kindness expressed through his church. When you come to Christ and you start to experience the love of God exemplified through other people of God, it is a beautiful thing. You need fellowship. You need friends. You need relationships. Number two, we are set free we are set free from the offerings of this world. And when you can get free from what this world can offer you, you are finally empowered to offer this world what Christ has given you. Hope you heard that. When you aren't chasing more things and higher incomes and more friends and more notoriety because you think that's what justifies you, that's what makes you righteous in your eyes or in the eyes of your peers— when you're free of that, now guess what? You actually find your God-given uh, offering, your God-given purpose. And that's the last one. We can find our true God-given purpose and lifelong partners when we lose ourselves. You, you know, the, the people who are so full of themselves have, have very few friends. They really do. Because 
it's just hard to be around people that just seem to be right all the time and, and never can admit that they're wrong and, and are too perfect and all that sort of thing. And so here you have Paul, Saul, the guy who felt like he had crossed every T and dotted every I in his imagination. And God crushes him. God crushes his self-righteousness and brings him to Jesus, and he finds Christ's righteousness. And it's all that he will ever need from this point forward. He will say in Philippians chapter 3, he says, Whatever was to my gain, I now consider rubbish. And the word in Greek for rubbish is the bad word we use for stuff we put in the toilet. Yes, that word. He says, it's not nothing to me. It's waste. Because there's nothing better than having Christ. Amen? Amen. Okay, I hope you enjoyed this episode of The Deep End. Send your questions in. Always love them. Love seeing you on Tuesday nights at 7 p.m. Join us live if you can or later if you, if you can't. And please, please, please subscribe to youtube.com slash TV. youtube.com slash TV. Some of you have not yet subscribed yet. I need you to do it. Get over there. Do it now. Before you forget, youtube.com slash TV. I will see you next week on The Deep End. Thanks for joining us for this week's episode of The Deep End. We pray it helps you grow in your faith and your walk with Christ. If you don't already have a home church, we invite you to come out to one of our campuses this weekend. Check us out at waterschurch.org to find a location near you and a service time that fits your schedule. Make sure to stay tuned for next week's episode of The Deep End with Tim Hatch.